Welcome. My name is Marcia Henry, and I'm an associate professor in the Gender Institute, and I'm newly appointed as the deputy director of the Center for Women, Peace, and Security. So <laughs> um, welcome, everybody, today. Um, I want to just tell you a little bit about the format today, but I'll just quickly tell you two housekeeping things. One is we're not expecting a fire alarm, so if there is one, please exit <laughs> and gather across the back of new academic building. Um, second thing is, could you please turn off your mobile phones for the duration of the talk? That would be great. Okay, so... Um, the schedule of the talk is Christine's going to speak for about 50 minutes, and then, um, and then we'll have a discussion and take questions afterwards. And um, we'll close by 8, eight o'clock, 8 o'clock on the dot. But um, before doing that, I want to tell you a little bit about the Center for Women, Peace, and Security, and a little bit about Christine, and then she'll launch right in. Okay. So, uh, if you don't already know, the Center for Women, Peace, and Security was set up in, uh, was launched in February 2015, and it's a leading academic space uh, in progress, a leading academic space for scholars, activists, policymakers, and students to develop strategies to promote justice, human rights, and participation for women in conflict-affected situations around the world. Through innovative research, teaching, and multi-sectoral engagement, the center aims to promote gender equality and enhance women's economic, social, and political participation and security. So as you know, the center was launched in 2015 with the support of the Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict Initiative, co-founded by former UK Foreign Secretary William Hague and the Special Envoy of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Angelina Jolie-Pitt. So, now to Christine. Christine is the founding director of the Center for Women, Peace, and Security. She's a leading expert on international law and human rights law, especially the international human rights of women. Her groundbreaking work includes a book co-authored with Hilary Charlesworth, The Boundaries of International Law, a Feminist Analysis, which examined the status of women in human rights and international law. And Professor Chinkin has been a consultant or advisor to UN bodies on a range of issues, including human trafficking, gender-based persecution in armed conflict, peace agreements, and gender and violence against women. She has participated in two UN fact-finding missions to Gaza. Christine is a leading expert on the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, and was the scientific advisor to the Council of Europe committee that drafted the Convention on Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, the Istanbul Convention, the most far-reaching international treaty aimed at tackling violence against women and domestic violence. Um, you can hear more about CEDAW uh, at our event next week, so please, if you can, um, follow, uh, follow the events, the future events, uh, Women, Peace, and Security on our website, which is Hopefully there. So. <laughs> okay. It's on, it's on the leaflet. <laughs> it's on the leaflet in front of you. And also, if you're interested in um, tweeting uh, bits of tonight's talk, there's the hashtag for you down there. 
all caps LSE WPS. Um, and so tonight, um, Christine is going to be talking about women, peace, and security, tackling the cycle of violence against women. Thank you, Marsha, very much. Um, it's great to see so many of you here. It's even better to see so many friends and friendly faces here. And this is very much the sort of first LSE open event with respect to the Centre on Women, Peace and Security. So what we thought we would do tonight is essentially introduce you um, to the Centre or introduce the Centre to you, I suppose. Um, so what I'm going to do over the next sort of 45, 50 minutes is talk a bit about the background to the setting up of the centre, the um, context in which the centre has been set up, the normative framework that supports the work of the centre, and um, then to raise some of the sort of critiques and concerns and what the centre is going to be doing. So that's roughly the outline for the next 50 minutes. Now, as Marsha has already said, the centre developed out of the Prevention of Sexual Violence Initiative that was launched by William Hague and the Special Envoy of UNHCR in 2000, May 2012. This is the PSVI, or Prevention of Sexual Violence Initiative. And the public sort of showpiece of the PSVI initiative was the global summit meeting that was held in June of last year. But I think it's also important that there's been a number of sort of less public, less conspicuous events than the global summit meeting. For example, um, there's been the deployment of teams of experts to various conflict zones. These teams of experts work with UN and other teams in doing such things as um, training and assisting local people with respect to the collection of evidence of sexual violence, um, working on training of military, for example, in conjunction with the EU in Mali, helping with forensic ex um, expertise, medical expertise, and so on. So a whole host of activities that are going on behind the scenes and which um, friends from the Foreign Office who are here tonight could say far more about. Um, there was also a declaration of commitment to end sexual violence in conflict, which was launched at the commencement of the 68th session of the UN General Assembly in 2013. The declaration is now endorsed by well over 150 states, states who have pledged their support and commitment to this goal, that they will raise awareness of the widespread use of rape and other forms of sexual violence and armed conflict around the world, and on a range of practical and political commitments to challenge the widespread impunity of perpetrators and to provide better support to victims. But the centre is not a PSVI centre. It's called Women, Peace and Security. And this is to link it directly to the Security Council, UN Security Council's agenda on women, peace and security that was commenced in 2000 with the Security Council Resolution 1325, and what's important about this linkage is that it brings issues of sexual violence and armed conflict directly to the political agenda of the Security Council in the maintenance of international peace and security. This recognises that sexual violence constitutes a threat to international peace and security through its high incidence in armed conflict, through its contribution to the displacement of peoples and refugee flows, something, of course, it's highly topical at the moment, 
and that without steps to address it properly through the um, divisiveness on society in so-called post-conflict eras. It is thus an essential subject of contemporary foreign policy, as emphasised, in fact, by William Hague. Women, Peace and Security is both wider and narrower than PSVI. It's wider in that it has a broader agenda, most notably the security agenda that I've just mentioned. PSVI is somewhat narrower with its particular focus on prevention of and accountability for sexual violence in armed conflict. But PSVI is also wider than Women, Peace and Security in that it's a gender-neutral initiative. Its focus on prevention of and tackling the consequences of sexual violence is with respect to all victims, not just women. In contrast, women, peace and security, by definition, is gender-specific. It's about the situation of women, particularly during and post-armed conflict. I think it's quite striking when you read the Security Council resolutions just how few references there are to men in them, except as perpetrators or with respect to different needs in the context of disarmament. But the women, peace and security agenda, we had a lot of discussion sort of in the background before the centre was actually set up as to whether it should be called women, peace and security or gender, peace and security. We decided on women, peace and security to be in line with the Security Council resolutions. But, and I think this is a very important aspect for the centre, we firmly believe that the women, peace and security security agenda cannot be progressed without taking account of the militarised constructions of masculinities of the diverse roles and experiences of men and boys in conflict, as well as those of women and girls. So it's women-specific, but that doesn't mean we don't do gender, is the sort of message. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, both initiatives give some recognition to the fact that conflict is gendered. It's understood and experienced by women and men differently because of their gender. That is, it's gender-based. And gender-based violence has also been defined in international law as violence that occurs to a person because of their gender or which occurs disproportionately to either men or women. As a very sort of basic example of the gendered nature of conflict, men and women are typically separated in many a conflict situation. Men are then targeted, detained, and killed as fighters and as potential fighters in far greater numbers than occurs to women. In a poignant illustration of this, a witness at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, spoke about her experience of genocide at Srebrenica in Bosnia that occurred 20 years ago this year. She recalled seeing her young son for the last time as her family tried to board the buses that had been brought to the scene. She quotes, From the left-hand column, one of their soldiers jumped out. He spoke to my child. He told us, the women, to move to the right. And he told my son, Young man, you should go to the left side. I grabbed him by his hand, and then I begged them. I pleaded with them, Why are you taking him? He was born in 1983. But he repeated his order, and I held him so hard, but he grabbed him, and he took my son's hand, 
and he dragged him to the left side. That was the last time I heard his voice. The separation of women and men led inexorably to their different fates. The women were bussed away, while men of fighting age or potential fighting age, such as this 14-year-old child, were massacred. PSVI and Women, Peace and Security both assume that sexual violence and conflict is gender-based and that it occurs disproportionately against women in its incidence and its effects. Although there is a lack of clarity about the precise sort of statistics relating to the incidents with respect to both women and men. On the one hand, sexual violence and armed conflict against women is underreported. On the other hand, it may also be inflated to the detriment both of recognizing sexual violence against men and other harms committed against women in armed conflict. Sexual violence against men in armed conflict, of course, is also very significantly underreported. It's notable that the most recent instruments relating to women, peace and security, um, that's the resolutions in 2013, do refer explicitly to the fact that men and boys are victims of this crime. And it goes on, as are those who are forced to witness or perpetrate this violence against their family or community members. Gender-based violence is also directed at those who are perceived to be in some way as deviant with respect to their sexual or gender identity. So in the words of a recent report of the United Nations of the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights, violence is, quote, driven by a desire to punish individuals whose appearance or behavior appears to challenge gender stereotypes. The report then goes on to describe incidents recounted from the Syrian Arab Republic of rape and torture of men assumed to be gay, perpetrated both by state security agents and by non-state armed groups. It also describes the targeting of LGBTI persons for punishment, including killings. The report describes photos that appeared in um, February of 2015 that appeared to show several men allegedly accused of homosexual acts being pushed to off a tower to their deaths by militants of ISIS. But I think what's apparent and what is really important is that these are all distinct phenomena. We shouldn't just conflate together sexual violence against women, sexual violence against men, sexual violence on the basis of sexual or gender identity. They have different social, medical and psychological consequences They occur with different manifestations and, most importantly, demand very different responses. Um, Now, my background, as Marsha has said, has been essentially on women's human rights, and so that is going to be the focus for the rest of my lecture. But I really strongly emphasize that this is not that I or the Center discounts the incidence and seriousness of sex and gender-based violence committed against any victim the need for a great deal further research on these different patterns of manifestations with respect to different victims and the need for ongoing work in that respect. Okay, so turning explicitly to sexual violence against women, um, I think there's a tendency to think that um, it, sexual violence against women in an armed conflict um, occurs as a uniform phenomenon. 
Um, that is, that its incidents and manifestations are repeated in very similar patterns from place to place. But this is not the case. There are many different patterns of the physical, sexual, psychological violence against women in armed conflict. And so just to give a few examples of the different ways in which sexual violence um, manifests itself in situations of armed conflict. Bosnia. Bosnia, there were rape camps where women were removed from their homes, forcibly detained by armed groups and militias in a whole range of different um, premises. So they were detained in houses, apartments, gymnasiums, schools. And while being detained, they were subjected to what has been termed sexual slavery. That is, forced on the one hand to perform traditional women's tasks, household chores, cleaning, cooking, washing, etc., and then also subjected to constant rape. In a summary of witness statements before the ICTY, the tribunal told how to, quote, soldiers and policemen would come constantly, sometimes several times a day. They would point at women and girls, call them by their names, and take them out for rape. The women had no choice but to obey those men, and those who tried to resist were beaten in front of the other women. They would sometimes be raped together. That is, of course, publicly. The use of names also reminds us that the victims and perpetrators were known to each other. Neighbours, classmates, for example, before the war. So while rape in armed conflict is sometimes committed by strangers, often that is not the case. Often this is part of the divisiveness that occurs to communities. The uh, events in Bosnia were a chilling reminder of the fate of the so-called comfort women, women from across Asia who were transported from their homes, held in camps, military barracks, even caves in some instances, by the Japanese military during World War II and who were also subjected to continuous rape and other extreme forms of brutality. In Rwanda in 1984, sexual violence was an integral part of the genocide. Tutsi women were raped and mutilated before, in many cases, being killed. They were raped as women. They were murdered as Tutsis. This is a particular example of the intersectionality of gender and, in this instance, ethnicity. Um, Reports from Colombia, for example, also show the interaction between gender and indigeneity, the targeting of indigenous women, who are also, of course, among the poorest and the most marginalised within society. The issue of how gender interacts with other characteristics is another important aspect of the patterns of rape and sexual violence. In Sierra Leone, women and girls were systematically abducted in circumstances of extreme violence. They were compelled to move along with the fighting forces from place to place and coerced to form a variety of conjugal um, duties including regular sexual intercourse, forced domestic labour, such again as cleaning and cooking for the husband, to endure forced pregnancy and to care for the children of the so-called marriage. Hillary Clinton highlighted in the context of Sri Lanka that rape there was used as a tactic of war. The um, Secretary General's panel of experts in Sri Lanka found that rape and sexual violence against Tamil women, again, 
gender, ethnicity, was greatly underreported because of various cultural sensitivities, but nevertheless they received um, multiple indirect accounts of such sexual violence, particularly during the final stages and aftermath of the conflict. Syria, I think we all know, uh, well, maybe we don't know much about what's actually going on, but we all do know of the extreme violence that's going on there. Women in Syria have been subjected to sexual violence in places of detention, at checkpoints, sexual exploitation and harassment in refugee camps where they face daily insecurity and are subjected to forced and child marriage. Again, as an aside, there's a very strong correlation between high maternal mortality rates and situations of armed conflict. Other instances include targeted sexual violence linked to terrorism, violent extremism, and transnational organized crime. So in a recent example of this, the New York Times has reported that the systematic rape of women and girls from the Yazidi religious minority has become deeply enmeshed both in the structures and radical theology of the Islamic State, but also in its bureaucratic organizations. It's um, set up warehouses where women are then sold and they have contracts which are notarized by the Islamic courts in that area. Right, now the point of going through these various examples is not to dwell on their horrors, although we need to remember them, but rather to illustrate that we cannot assume that we know the patterns of such violence, nor of the evolution and continuity of particular patterns. Rather, it's important to determine the manifestations of such patterns, the identities of perpetrators and targets, fluctuations in its incidents on a case-by-case basis. Just as every conflict is context-specific, just as the impact of conflict on individuals varies according to their situation, um, for example, whether they are at home or whether they are displaced, varies according to their age, varies according to whether they are combatants or non-combatants, so too does the incidence and manifestation of sexual violence in conflict vary. Indeed, perhaps the only commonality that they have is the cruelty, extreme violence, and the causing of humiliation and terror. Um, There's also a lot we don't know about the causes of such sexual violence and armed conflict, except that it is very widespread. It's committed for a number of different reasons. It's now accepted that it is not an inevitable byproduct of war, but is structural, part of the instrumentality of conflict, and often inherent to the very aims of the conflict, that it is a weapon or um, tactic of war. It's also an extremely effective and extremely cheap weapon of war. It's also, of course, committed to impose control, to cause terror, to cause displacement and ethnic cleansing. It's also committed opportunistically, is committed publicly to intimidate and humiliate men from the opposing side, as well as the women, and to assert power over them, to punish women who who have defied the enemy, resisted, or stood up for human rights as human rights defenders. The challenges to human rights defenders is another extremely serious and ongoing issue. Also, men and women um, who um, assist survivors, the medical profession, often finds itself being targeted It's a form of torture and of summary and extrajudicial killing. 
What we do know, having said what we don't know, but what we do know is that there are multiple perpetrators. So perpetrators include state forces, security agencies, military forces. In the examples I've just given, in Japan, for example, um, Syria, Libya, Kosovo, you can give many other examples. Also committed by non-state forces, armed militias, rebel groups, gangs working in, um, working in conjunction with organized crime, um, extremists, of course. Um, it's also committed by peacekeepers. Those who are mandated to provide protection can themselves become abusers, including committing sexual abuse and exploitation of children, even trafficking them. Incidents recorded in Bosnia, Kosovo, Cambodia, Somalia. Any of you that have seen The Whistleblower, um, the film that shows very clearly trafficking um, in Kosovo and the involvement of UN peacekeepers uh, there. Um, that such crimes continue, although there have been very considerable efforts within the United Nations over the past decade to prevent abuses by peacekeepers, we have the currently widely publicised alleged act of rape committed against boys, apparently in return for food, by French troops in the Central African Republic, an incident that's on ongoing investigation at the moment. But it's also important that sexual violence and armed conflict is not committed just by the enemy, but also from within forces of a person's own community. For instance, rape that may be ordered by militia commanders to be carried out by suspected collaborators or by forcibly recruited forces, often young boys against abducted women and girls, in order to brutalise the former and thus to ready them for killing. <laughs> Good moment to stop. I'm so sorry. What are you doing? I'm just trying to get this back on the screen. Oh, is it not? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> okay, in order to brutalise them um, for killing and committing similar acts um, against enemy forces. Um, in the opening statement before the International Criminal Court in the case of Lubanga, which was the very first prosecution before the International Criminal Court, the prosecutor explained that young boys were instructed to rape, um, while girl soldiers were the daily victims of rapes by commanders. Girl soldiers were also used as cooks, fighters, cleaners, spies, scouts, and sexual slaves. Now, despite this very robust opening with respect to sexual violence, it then vanished um, from the rest of the, not quite from the rest of the case, but certainly from the part of the case that related to convictions. Came back in at the sentencing um, stage. Uh, in another manifestation of violence committed within a person's own military forces, there are examples within um, guerrilla fighters, for example, of women guerrilla fighters being required to undergo forced abortion because their commanders reckoned that pregnancy made them less efficient as fighting forces. Um, but also, there are forms of violence that occur from within a woman's own groups, own community, even her own family. Now, this may be carried out with very good intentions. For example, girls who are coerced into marriage by her family, which is seen as a way of protecting her from rape or from violence by enemy forces. So a sort of protective type device. Um, it may also be to protect the family honour. It may be for financial reasons, where war has made the family destitute. 
And then there is also the very high incidence of domestic violence or intimate partner violence, um, which is shown particularly that occurs during and post-violence. Um, now, this last um, sort of incidence, particularly within um, families and within a um, person's own forces, is why the preferred term now is not um, sexual violence in armed conflict, as I've been saying so far, but rather conflict-related sexual and gender-based violence. And one aspect of this is to indicate that the division between conflict and post-conflict is entirely misleading for a number of reasons. First, there is often no easy transition from conflict to post-conflict. Often what there is is a um, time of extreme violence, then there may be cessation of the violence, and the violence returns again. So waves of violence and non-violence, making it extremely difficult to say at any given moment whether we're actually in conflict or post-conflict. Second, it's very difficult, I think, to differentiate between situations of extreme violence and armed conflict in some instances. Um, For example, the alarming escalation of extreme forms of violence against women and girls since the 1990s in a number of parts of Central America, um, notably Mexico, notably Guatemala. Um, What we have seen there are literally hundreds of women and girls subjected to violence that includes torture, sexual abuse, deprivation of liberty, post-mortem dismembering, abandoning of bodies in public places. Um, And I I find this extremely hard to differentiate from targeting an armed conflict. It seems to me it's a clear targeting of women and girls for extreme forms of violence. Thirdly, of course, violence does not stop with a ceasefire or a peace agreement, especially for women, although it may be manifested in diverse forms, the incidence of trafficking that increases post and so-called post-conflict. Domestic violence, again, also increases at that time. And then, fourth, the consequences of sexual and gender-based violence can continue in ways related to the conflict for many years after its supposed end. On the 20th anniversary of Srebrenica, the prosecutor of the ICTY described the ongoing lives of the women survivors, those who were bussed away in my earlier example. He talked about how they had sought to re-establish their lives and repair their broken families and communities, the realities of being displaced, trying to return home, the struggle to meet basic needs for themselves and their surviving children, dealing with the psychological trauma of the genocide and their protracted research their protracted search for missing family members. He concluded that these facts remain, in his words, the all-too-often-overlooked part of the Serebrenica atrocity. In June of this year, that's 20 years after the so-called end of the Bosnia conflict, the Dayton Peace Agreement, the first court order was made for the payment of reparation for wartime harms to women in Bosnia. And this was a landmark. Um, The comfort women, of course, are still waiting, 70 years after the end of World War II, for what they deem to be an acceptable apology from the Japanese state. Testimony that women gave at a women's tribunal that took place in 2000, this was a people's tribunal, 
held in Tokyo because the international justice system had failed to give any recompense to the women and national jurisdictions also proved to be inadequate. So these women spoke of the lives that they had lived since the end of the Second World War, in poverty, often in isolation, often with long-term physical and other mental health and physical issues. It's not just for the individual survivors that consequences are ongoing. Because of the socio-cultural subordination of women, sexual violence will and does shatter families, destroy communities through stigma, shame, displacement and rejection. And the displacement and instability that is caused through this also lays families and communities vulnerable to other forms of harm and violence. So that's the context and it's all very grim. (laughs) Um, So what I'll now do is turn to the much um, more neutral um, topic of the legal frameworks that underpin the PSVI initiative and the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Now, there are three separate legal regimes that um, address the issue, creating what we now have as a sizable body of law. Right, the first legal regime, the oldest, dates back to the 19th century, is so-called international humanitarian law, or the laws of war. This is the body of law that regulates both the means and methods of warfare and provides protections for certain categories of people, notably um, wounded, the wounded and sick in war, and prisoners of war. Following World War II, um, the 1949 Geneva Conventions added protection for civilians, including a specific provision protecting against rape, enforced prostitution, and any form of indecent assault. IHL, International Humanitarian Law, is essentially a code of conduct for military forces. It's essentially a technical and detailed set of regulations that um, forces should um, be trained in prior to any conflict and then be applied at the situation of conflict. It assumes enemy forces facing each other in battle. It does not apply to violence that is committed within a person's own forces, nor does it apply to situations that are outside the conflict zone, rape camp, um, refugee camps or displaced person camps, for example, are outside the ambit of the armed conflict for IHL. Now, IHL has been given some substance through the second legal regime, which is international criminal law. International criminal law provides for individual criminal responsibility for the commission of international crimes, described as war crimes, which are essentially violations of international humanitarian law, crimes against humanity, which are widespread and systematic crimes against the civilian population, and genocide. Now, international criminal law was in its infancy in the war crimes trials in Nuremberg and Tokyo following World War II and the various locally held trials that took place at that point. Rape and sexual violence figured only very tangentially. It's been developed considerably, particularly since the 1990s, with the creation of the um, ad hoc criminal tribunals Yugoslavia, Rwanda, um, Sierra Leone, and then special courts in East Timor and Cambodia. And then, of course, the um, creation of the International Criminal Court by the Statute of Rome 1998, created in 2002. Through prosecution policy, trials, punishment of perpetrators, development of modes of accountability, and making further crimes subject to international prosecution, 
notably sexual slavery, forced pregnancy, forced sterilization, and gender-based persecution, significantly greater legal provision has now been made in response to sex and gender-based violence. Right, the third body of law is human rights law. Now, if one looked just at international humanitarian law and international criminal law, one might think that the only significant legal agenda with respect to the treatment of women in war is preventing and punishing sexual and gender-based violence. In contrast, human rights law recognizes that armed conflict has a deep impact on and broad consequences for the equal enjoyment and exercise by women of their fundamental human rights. For instance, the disruption to their right to education, their right to access to health care, etc. The essence of human rights law is state responsibility. States are responsible for violations committed by their own um, state agents, notably security forces, military forces, and they are also responsible for the act of non-state actors through failure to exercise due diligence to prevent, protect against, investigate, prosecute and punish offenders and pay reparations to victims. However, of course, this is unlikely to have much practical effect where the non-state forces are fighting precisely against the government in question that is expected to exercise due diligence with respect to their actions. Human rights law, importantly, sees gender-based violence as rooted in discrimination and unequal power relations between women and men. Conflict exacerbates existing gender inequalities, placing women at heightened risk of various forms of gender-based violence by both state and non-state actors. In 1993, the World Conference on Human Rights asserted that rape in armed conflict constitutes a violation of both international humanitarian law and human rights law, and thus between violence committed in wartime and in so-called peacetime, an understanding that such violence occurs in a continuum rooted in gender inequality. Right now, to turn now to the um, Security Council's Women, Peace and Security agenda. Now, this agenda um, comprises a number of distinct pillars which in many ways incorporate and build upon the three legal regimes that I've just mentioned. So it's a political regime building upon um, the various legal regimes. The agenda was initially set out, as I've already said, in the groundbreaking resolution of 1325 of 2000, and it particularly focuses on conflict prevention and conflict, post-conflict reconstruction. Importantly, although this is a Security Council resolution, it was the result of a great deal of activism by civil society groups and NGOs lobbying at the Security Council. It's very much a product that arose out of the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing in 1995, progressed, and it was a great triumph to get it through into um, the Security Council. It's been followed up by a whole wave of further Security Council resolutions, including two in 2013. Now, taken together, there are a number of different pillars, so-called pillars, of um, 1325 and the um, following resolutions. The first is the importance of participation of women um, in multiple roles in all stages of conflict resolution, management, peace talks, and implementation of peace agreements. 
Now, this is not the first time that participation by women has come onto the international agenda. In 1915, at the um, Hague Congress, women who came together from Europe, across Europe and from the United States urged for the participation of women in the talks at Versailles following the end of World War I. They got to see Woodrow Wilson, but they didn't actually manage to get to participate in um, the Versailles Agreement. Um, the CEDAW Committee, too, the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, has also emphasised the importance of women's participation. Um, this is essentially um, highlighting women's agency. Women are not simply passive and inevitable victims of armed conflict. They are active throughout conflict. They're active in traditional female roles, including um, holding communities together, caring for the sick and wounded, trying to maintain some sort of normal life, education, and so on, um, for the children. But in, in addition, during wars, women participate in new activities and assume new roles, um, for including, for example, combatant roles, resistance roles, human rights defenders-type roles. Demand for participation of women in various aspects of peace processes, peace agreements, accepts that peace negotiations are inevitably weakened when they involve only the warring parties. Women's participation is also urged in institutional processes and mechanisms, for instance, in field operations, peacekeeping, peacebuilding missions, military observers, civilian police, human rights, humanitarian personnel. The second pillar, um, in line with the United Nations general policy of gender mainstreaming, urges the integration of a gender perspective into all policies and programs of the international, um, all policies and programs at the international level and at the domestic level in post-conflict um, reconstruction. So elections, political reform, security um, reform, judicial reform, etc. So gender mainstreaming as a sort of, um, as, as important for bringing the substance relating to gender relations into such peace processes. Third is prevention and protection. This is also spelled out in a range of measures, such as enforcing appropriate military disciplinary measures, training troops on the categorical prohibition of all forms of sexual violence, debunking myths that fuel sexual violence, setting, vetting armed and security forces to take into account prior actions of rape and other forms of abuse, and also strengthening services. Um, this is brought in particularly in the most recent resolutions, such as legal services, uh, medical services for survivors of such violence. And then the fourth is accountability and combating impunity of perpetrators. Through implementation of the international criminal law, through other transnational justice mechanisms, such as truth and reconciliation commissions, through naming and shaming of perpetrators, and under the most recent resolutions, even the possibility of targeting perpetrators for sanctions by the Security Council, although this has not actually taken place. So these four pillars, in conjunction with other significant UN documents on the protection of civilians and protection of children in armed conflict, reports on peacekeeping regimes all recognise the need for an equitable gender participation in the complex peace operations that are mandated in response to the forms of contemporary and extreme political violence. What my colleague and co-worker Mary Calder has described as new wars. 
Thus, in accordance with some shift, at least, within the United Nations, it moves away from the classic focus on national or state security towards at least some acceptance of the need for human security. That is focusing on the protection and security of the individual. By recognizing the particular security needs of women in conflict, it opens up the space for gendering human security within the institutional framework. As such, of course, Resolution 1325 was welcomed by women as bringing women's rights and gender equality onto the international security agenda and its follow-up resolutions as ensuring their continued place there. So unlike what might be described as the silence around the subject of sexual violence and conflict, which with some small exceptions lasted until the last decade of the 20th century, there's now a sizable normative framework for addressing sexual violence and armed conflict, and it's expressed in a range of different languages. The language of rights, the language of protection, the language of security, of criminal law, of institutionalization, of technical expertise, managerialism. But there are also critiques that are important of both the political regimes, the political regimes of PSVI and Women, Peace and Security, and of the legal regimes that I have just described. So, in the short time left, I'll just mention some very quickly of the critiques. Now, first and foremost, while it is obviously absolutely essential and important that there is a focus on sexual violence, it must not be allowed to obscure other harms that will have an especially detrimental impact upon women in armed conflict. And I've mentioned some of these as we've already gone through, but other harms, such as forced displacement as a result of unequal citizenship rights, gender-based application of asylum laws, obstacles to registering and accessing identity documents. Nor must the concentration on armed conflict deflect attention from the extreme gender-based and sexual violence that occurs in so-called ordinary, everyday life, and how inequality perpetuates this continuum. It must also be questioned whether the selectivity and adversarial nature of criminal trials makes them necessarily the best way of seeking justice for women. At the international level, of course, prosecutions have been very few, convictions also very few, and most perpetrators, of course, vast majority of perpetrators, do not face any form of international criminal um, jurisdiction. Um, to date, there has been no conviction um, at the International Criminal Court for sexual violence. Um, trials are necessarily reactive and punitive. Their deterrent and preventative value um, is questionable and they may deliver little in terms, concrete terms, for survivors. Without inadequate security, they may, of course, also be dangerous for survivors. International trials impose further burdens on witnesses and survivors. Now, while in the long term, the greatest impact of international criminal law may well be its domestication into national courts, we must also remember that trials of rape and sexual violence in national courts also very frequently lead to very low conviction rates. Legalism, too, has its downsides. For instance, in Bosnia, a misinterpretation of a decision of the European Court of Human Rights has led to release pending retrial of a number of persons convicted of war crimes and genocide. This premature release 
has been extremely disturbing, frightening for victims and witnesses of their crimes. According to one of the Serebnitsa relatives, to quote, I feel like a victim again. I don't know where the released criminals now are. They could be standing behind my back as we speak. Of course, this is even more true of those who have never faced any trial or, or conviction. Both PSVI and Women, Peace and Security are top-down initiatives, signifying a shift from the local civil society activism and activity to the global. Security of Courts High Council is, of course, the peak of the international legal order, and decisions with respect to international peace and security are made by diplomats in New York, far removed from the women whose lives will be affected by them. In seeking to implement such top-down decisions, there's a danger of losing sight of local institutions and actors, especially at the post-conflict reconstruction stage, and thus of making erroneous assumptions, failing to benefit from local knowledge and expertise, or worse, making things worse in those areas by just failing to um, engage with local actors. Further, resolutions must be mediated on the ground through peacekeepers, international experts and officials to make them relevant to local women. On the one hand, such international personnel may lack understanding or be unsympathetic to the women, peace and security agenda, regarding it as just a further complicating factor in what is already a very difficult and complex situation, and thus one that can be ignored. In a worst-case scenario, international personnel become themselves responsible for abuse and sexual exploitation. On the other hand, where peacekeepers, international personnel are committed to addressing gender equality and women's rights post-conflict, they may find these goals contrary to local policies and positions on these matters. Attempts by international personnel to give them effect may only result in friction and tension, something peacekeepers tend to try to avoid. Other internationals may urge compromise and ask them to suspend this agenda until such time as it's more appropriate to de deal with gender equality. Um, again, this instrumentalization and the um, attitude that such issues can be negotiated away are um, a matter of major concern. Um, critically, too, of course, is the lack of enforcement, very slow and often incoherent rate of implementation. The resolutions do not include mechanisms for monitoring implementation, and despite the proliferation of international human rights mechanisms, these two remain weak. Despite um, some progress, women remain largely excluded from participation in peace processes. So UN Women reported in 2012 that out of 31 peace processes conducted between 1992 and 2013, women comprised 4% of signatories, 2.4% of chief mediators, 3.7% of witnesses, 9% of negotiators. Women remain underrepresented in the institutional and other roles asserted in Resolution 1325, 8% of police officers, 2% of military personnel in UN peacekeeping operations. 2014, the first woman was appointed as head of a peacekeeping force, that in Cyprus. But I think more problematically with respect to participation, the assumption on which the Security Council has acted is that adding women to the various processes of peace and security will of itself be beneficial. While avoiding the essentialist trap 
It can be said that women, as a consequence of their position in the sexual and social division of labor or of social relations in general, are able to bring in conflict are able to bring to conflict negotiations experiences and perspectives that may be more favorable to their resolution. But without a considerable investment of time and resources into facilitating the coming together of women from conflict-affected areas and working on their priorities, their agendas, the ways they can meaningfully participate within negotiations, this still remains very doubtful. PSVI and Women, Peace and Security essentially add women to already established structures and do not involve taking seriously the implications of recognizing conflict and security as gendered. How masculinities and femininities are structured and perpetuated by conflict. How women remain projected as the protected and men as the aggressor. How the model of masculinity constructed through conflict becomes part of the very logic of violence and is sustained by its instability. How the abuses experienced by women combatants, who can be both perpetrators and victims of war crimes, also remain too often unaddressed. Nor does PSVI or Women, Peace and Security challenge structural harms, the impact of militarization, the inequalities fostered by neoliberal globalization, and which are enhanced when the structure is repeated post-conflict. The continuum of violence that moves from the home through to armed conflict. So, have I just talked myself out of a women, peace, and security um, centre? Um, no, of course. These critiques are important, but they are not, of course, to say that PSVI, women, peace, and security are not worthwhile. Um, of course, I believe that they are important, must be supported long term. But I think it is important that they are seen as a starting point and not as a conclusion whose results can already be assessed. A great deal of research has, of course, been done on all of these issues, and PSVI identified further gaps in our knowledge. Uh, what we hope is that the centre will become a forum for asking and exploring important questions. So questions such as, what works, what doesn't work? How do patterns of sexual and gender-based violence relate to the different forms of warfare? Why does sexual violence and conflict work? What are the integrated strategies that the international community, governments, and most importantly in conjunction with local civil societies need to follow to address it? What is the connection between the political economy, war, and sexual violence? How do we change attitudes Attitudes that allow perpetrators to continue their lives with impunity while survivors live with trauma, isolation, and poverty. What needs to be prioritized? How do we determine adequate and sustained appropriate budgetary allocations? How do we measure results? The international legal framework is obviously important, but it cannot stand alone, and it's a blunt tool. It must be, it must be implemented and complemented by multi-sectoral expertise, hence the centre is designed to be multidisciplinary. Tackling sexual violence and armed conflict also challenges some of the fundamental principles of international law, its substance, its methodology. For instance, the need for continued immunity of UN personnel um, or laws that um, allow for stateless persons, a major issue, again, in the current migration situation. International law needs reform, 
For instance, seeking ways of bringing economic and social rights into transitional justice mechanisms, making reparation programs transformative, ensuring the willingness of states to contribute to peacekeeping forces while addressing the need for transparency and accountability within the United Nations itself. Legal frameworks must be reformed, mindsets transformed, and economic systems put in place that all recognize sexual violence before, during, and post-armed conflict, that this violence cannot be compartmentalized, but is part of the global picture of the arms trade, of neoliberalism, of patriarchy. Foreign policies that address these agendas must be complemented by domestic policies. For example, the dissonance between foreign policy relating to sexual violence and asylum policies at home. The importance of this government becoming a party to the domestic the European Convention on Preventing and Protecting Against Violence Against Women, which must be implemented at the domestic level. Some of these issues will be addressed by the Global Summit on the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which um, is going to report to the Security Council next week. Um, it will be the role of the Centre for Women, Peace and Security to build upon that agenda, to build upon research that has already been done, and to bring together academics, activists, practitioners, survivors in trying to understand more of this topic. It could be argued, of course, that academia is yet another top-down initiative and that it takes away from the local. I've criticised top-down initiatives. Are we just another one? Uh, we do hope and believe that academia does have a role to play in trying to build a bridge between civil society, activists and activities, government and um, other practitioners. So we seek to combine scholarship, activism and policy discussion. We believe that the political and policy programs for combating gender-based violence, especially with respect to women, will benefit from detailed and focused academic research um, into these various areas. Research and so we aim to bring together research and practice across the LSE on issues relating to women, peace and security, and sexual violence and armed conflict and conflict-affected settings. Thank you. Perfect. That was perfect timing, Christine. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to take questions in groups of three or four um, and then see how much time we have for those. So, would anybody like to start? Yes. If you, just, if you could do me a favor and just wait for the mic and if you could, um, if you could present yourself. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Dr. Alan Murabit. I'm actually a member of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325 Global Study Advisory Board. So I will be actually, can you hear me? I can hear you, but I can't see. Yes, right, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, 
you focused, and I, I recognize the importance of preventing sexual violence and conflict because I'm the founder of an organization called The Voice of Libyan Women, which is focused heavily on that right. in Libya. Um, but I, I, I think I maybe did not necessarily understand the purpose of the center here specifically, if its research is focused predominantly on sexual violence and conflict, or if it's going to cover the broader scope of, thir- scope of 1325, and really how that's going to delve into the research that's being done by the center in Georgetown and, yeah. and other vehicles that are currently at work on that. Yep, thanks. So thanks. Right there, please, in the black. Uh, Thank you for such a wonderful talk. Uh, I think all war is rape, violence, and murder, no matter what deluded rules are imposed upon them, firstly. So that should end. I'm convinced you are trying to stop sexual violence, but I'm not convinced the industry that you're in is trying to stop uh, or tackle uh, the cycle of sexual violence. Because I think there is a common link between all these... Sorry, uh, speak up a bit? I think there is a common link between all these... uh, examples you've given this evening, which is religion. And I'm just very curious to why this hasn't been mentioned in your talk. And also, have you had any successful convictions convictions against the church and its uh, ideologies? Thank you. Hi there. Um, my name's Sophie Stevens. I'm a consultant working with Social Development Direct, and we do research and consultancy on um, a lot of issues around violence against women, including what's working. Um, I've got a background mainly in, in security and justice sector issues. And I just wanted to ask you a question about the issue of attitude change on some of the programs I've been working on recently, um, particularly the Girls' Education Challenge. It's clear that underlying a lot of the challenges around addressing sexual violence more broadly within society, as you mentioned, relate to people's attitudes. Measuring attitude change is very difficult to do, as you um, probably know, and to do it well um, is hard. And I just wondered if you were going to do anything within the centre in terms of research into how attitude change takes place, how that can be measured, what sort of initiatives are effective to change people's attitudes around gender roles and, and sexual violence. And also just wondered where you got the statistics on women's participation in peace processes, which are very interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, thanks very much uh, for the various questions. Um, with respect to the um, woman at the back, um, yes, very much we do intend to look at the broader issues of women peace, and, uh, women, peace, and security. So that's why we're called Women, Peace, and Security rather than PSVI. And um, both think that... Um, I'm now covered in ink. Uh, both think that um, the, you cannot look at PSVI except in that broader framework, and particularly issues relating to um, women's agency, women's participation, and so on. Um, now, you've probably seen the Global Summit report. Um, as you said, you're on the advisory board of it. Um, from earlier statements from um, Radhika Kumaraswamy, 
quite clearly issues relating to militarism, to extremism, from um, the importance of budgeting and accountability are all very much you know, bigger issues that are going to be part of that agenda. And um, yes, that, those are areas we want to work on. We're having, in fact, in November, um, a full-day conference on um, looking at the outcome of the Global Summit with um, women's NGOs in London and uh, with particulars to what sort of recommendations to make to the UK government uh, with respect to um, the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Um, you mentioned the Georgetown Centre. Um, we're very much in contact with them. And what we hope to do, they're five years ahead of us, um, so we've obviously done a great deal more research, um, got a very much fuller research programme. Um, what we hope to do is either work in some instances, there's been some suggestions already, um, in, um, no, with each other, in partnership with each other, or at the very least to make sure that our, um, our approaches and theirs are complementing and not um, du duplicating each other. I mean, again, looking ahead rather um, more um, to try and set up links with other academic institutions. Um, there's work going on certainly in Australia, for example, and I think perhaps to try and set up some sort of network at the academic level relating to that sort of area. Um, <laughs> yes, well, let's take this pen away. Um, the point that was made um, about um, religion and um, the way all of these things are linked. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, I think we have an extraordinarily complex interaction of multiple, both on the one hand, ideologies, whether they are secular or religious ideologies, economic aspects, militarism, all of which combine in various ways to perpetuate both conflict and particular abuses within um, armed conflict. Um, there's also been work done... Um, following on PS, from PSVI with faith leaders, um, looking at the ways in which faith leaders can um, work with respect to these particular issues. Um, conviction rates um, involving the church, that's not something I've looked at um, explicitly, so I don't know um, precisely, but certainly your broader point um, is one that is um, extremely important. Um, I had a feeling this would be what would happen tonight, which is that people would give us research agendas uh, that we should be looking at. I uh, would like to emphasize we're very, very new and very, very small. And though we've certainly got ideas about our research agenda, um, we haven't got it sort of fully mapped out and so on yet. Um, attitude change, though, is very clearly um, an important aspect that needs to be addressed. Um, I mean, I think it's significant that way back in 1979, Article 5 of the CEDAW Convention um, imposes an obligation upon states to work to modify attitudes, cultures, stereotypes, etc., that work to um, promote the inferiority of one sex over the other sex. Um, I don't think that there's been... Um, a great deal of success with respect to Article 5, although what we are getting now is considerably more um, reference to the impact of cultural and um, customary stereotypes and prejudices and how they feed into discriminatory attitudes, normalise discriminatory attitudes, and therefore contribute to violence. 
Um, the only thing I... So, yes, I think it's a good research topic. Um, two, I don't know... I certainly don't think lawyers are very equipped to do so. We come back to the multidisciplinary um, aspect of our work. But I would say I think one aspect that's really important... Two aspects that are really important in any such work... One is to work with men and boys with that. There is no point working just with women with respect to trying to change attitudes. And secondly, it has to also be work with people on the ground in local areas. That, again, is certainly something that can't just be done through a top-down um, type approach. Okay, thank you. Okay, here... Okay, just waiting for the mic. Yep. Yeah, there was the mic. Oh, yeah, right. there it is already right beside you. Hi, I'm Carmen Chandler. I'm a former student of the Gender Institute. Um, I thank you for your talk. It was very interesting. I just wanted to ask, how do we study um, wartime sexual violence uh, and avoid being voyeuristic or looking through it, um, looking at it through a colonial gaze? Thank you. Sorry, that was two part. Without being voyeuristic and looking at it through a colonial gaze. Colonial gaze. Please? Yes. And then... Hi, um, I'm Corinne Kazadi, and I work for a publishing house specializing in Africa-related news. Um, thank you so much for this informa informative talk. Um, my question is more regarding how the center position itself in the face of what has been happening for over 20 years in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, if I recall correctly, I haven't heard during your presentation data about what has been going on there. So I just wanted to know how you position yourself in the future. Just behind you. Hi there. Um, I was wondering... Are there examples of conflicts that have lower incidence of sexual violence against and, and gender-based violence? And if so, is there anything we can learn from those conflicts? And one more up here, please. Yeah. Well, thank you for a wonderful talk. Um, I suppose my question relates to one of your critiques, which is that all, if all conflicts are gendered, does it mean that actually the women, peace and security agenda is not just about, that that's important in itself, dealing with the harms that women face, but actually it's a way to address conflict in general? Right. <laughs> Some very challenging and um, difficult questions. Um, yeah, how do we look at sexual violence, um, all the incidents and so on, without becoming voyeuristic about it? Um, I honestly don't know the answer about that. I, as a lawyer, uh, legal training is very much about distancing yourself from and maybe distancing yourself too much, in fact. I mean, that's the other side. How do you avoid being voyeuristic but not become completely immune um, to the um, um, horrible, horrible type uh, material that you are reading? 
Um, as I say, as lawyers, we tend to put up a sort of legal barrier um, in terms of trying to address the legal issues that arise out of the various materials and so on um, and do it in that way. But um, and particularly in an era of social media, I think there is always going to be a risk that the sort of pornography, um, quite honestly, of um, much of this sort of work is a very real danger. Um, the colonial gaze, I mean, I think, yeah, that, I, I think that is such a complex issue. Um, there is a tendency, I think, that, and maybe this links with the DRC question as well, because I think there's a tendency to um, regard sexual violence and armed conflict as only really becoming um, significant almost with the publication of Against Our Will, which I think was in 1976, and then in the 1990s as the various international legal materials um, took it up. And in a great deal, it's very easy to um, project, say, the Congo as a, or DRC, as a place where sexual violence is rampant, um, that it's part of the um, situation in the early 21st century and completely ignore the roots of violence that go back certainly to the colonial period, the period of King Leopold, the slavery, the slave trade, um, the... Um, the exploitation in every single possible way um, that were um, were clearly manifest at that time, and how those histories you know, sort of continue continue on. Um, so I think, as with all post-colonial studies, we have to take account of pre um, pre-independence histories and the importance of, back to the continuum of violence and the ways in which attitudes that have been, attitudes, behaviours that were endemic, colonial period and earlier, and to see it as part of the overall picture today. Why I didn't mention the DRC? Um... I think because, one, because it gets mentioned so much that it's almost become overemphasized. And um, we were actually at a seminar earlier today where we uh, were discussing a research paper on um, sexual violence in the DRC and a feeling that that's the only way in which the DRC is ever looked at these days. Yeah. Could I ask you just to, Sorry. yeah, if you yeah. want to? I know, yeah, no, I know. Uh, um, and that history of rape, as we said, being deeply rooted in historical um, realities, yeah, not just of um, the contemporary day. Um, what was the next question? Oh. About oh, of, oh, where there are lower incidents of sexual violence. Difficult um, because, again, of the problems of reporting, underreporting, and so on. 
Um, I mean, I think it's a very important question because if we can understand examples where it doesn't occur, um, two poss- it's always been argued that, for example, it did not occur in the troubles with respect to Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, although um, recent reports are beginning to challenge whether that is, in fact, um, the case. Another example is that the um, Israeli Defence Force um, has a low record of sexual violence in the way that we've been talking about, apparently. I mean, you know, again, um, depending on whether um, information and so on is, um, is accurate. And, yes, I think that the, you know, if we could... Um, and if could ascertain whether such examples are in fact um, accurate and learn from them. I think that would be an extremely useful learning um, mechanism. Okay, thank you. Would, would you like to... No, she's not looking at me. Okay. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'll come back to you. <laughs> uh, down here, please. Kate, right here, please. I'm not supposed to use names. <laughs> the woman earlier today wouldn't have accepted the seven million. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Have we got time? No, no, I'm just checking. Okay. Um, Kate Jenkins, the LSE. I just wanted to ask about the role of the UN in this. I mean, listening to the really extensive array of legal instruments that there are, the number of resolutions by the Security Council and the United Mm -hmm. Nations, the knowledge that many of the signatories to these documents have very little intention of doing very much about what they're signing. It must be quite difficult to maintain a sense of momentum against the relative indifference that must be within these large international organizations. How how do we deal with this, given that you've got such a compelling title? I think tackling the cycle of violence, the cycle of violence is the really important thing, but I wonder the extent to which we are in fact up against a certain amount of of, um, institutional indifference. I think there's a Another question over there, if there's not anybody else. Thank you. Um, I do not mean to be provocative. This is not a question. This is more a comment. Um, What you say is very interesting, and of course, what has been happening for two decades now. I'm 30-year-old. I was 10 when this started in DRC. has been overly mentioned. Therefore, I just wonder something which has been that overly mentioned how come this is still happening now today and um, during your presentation uh, you mentioned uh, many interesting things regarding what has been happening in ex-Yugoslavia that also has been overly mentioned but I do believe according to what you're saying that if it's not everything but a part some issues have been addressed which is not what is happening in DRC Um, I feel very passionate about it because I'm a French citizen, but my parents come from DRC, and I have witnessed a few things. Um, And I'm very curious as to when and which institution someday will actually find part of a solution for what is happening there. And... 
Well, I might have one question. Is the center or planning on working or interacting with Dr. Mukegwe, this uh, doctor gynecologist? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Aiko Holvikili. I'm a brand new doctoral student at the Gender Institute. And I actually had a question to do with the legal framework and the way you characterized the Security Council resolutions being a political regime based in a, in a legal regime. And I was wondering whether you had seen this um, influence going in the other direction as well, because we know that the Women, Peace and Security Council Security Council resolutions are, are much more comprehensive in how they view women and gender, for example, than the international criminal law, or more comprehensive in how they view security than humanitarian law. And, and does that give impetus or, or does that cause a change in how these laws are enacted and interpreted? Thank you. Is that enough for you, Christine? <laughs> <laughs> um, I realise I didn't answer Mary's question um, from the round before. And isn't, the, isn't one way of addressing conflict in general to increase our understanding of all aspects, all elements of conflict, and that therefore the gender dynamics, the constructions around masculinity, femininity, and so on, that are... Um, created during conflict must be one way, at least. I don't think it'll be the only way. I think there are, as you've written, many, many other factors, but I think they need to come in, and that without having those, we fail to grasp an essential part of conflict, which, again, um, lessens our chances of um, addressing either conflict or post-conflict reconstruction. Um, Indifference uh, at the international level... Um, isn't it even worse than indifference? Isn't it? We'll have a big splash every so often. So we have 1325, we have the global summit now, and once we've had the big splash, it's been dealt with. And everything can go back then um, to as it was before. And as you say, the um, disconnect between willingness of states to sign up to various instruments and then um, as soon as the big splash is over and the big, you know, is gone, um, it very much links up with budgeting, um, the need to create proper and appropriate budgets to actually make this effective um, and not just to rely on donors, you know, at various times. Um, with Chaloka in the front row, it's the importance to tie up with um, proper budgeting for the human rights institutions in general, the work of special rapporteurs, all the human rights mechanisms to try to make an integrated and coordinated aspect. Um, the whole sort of soft law part of the United Nations is grossly underfunded um, compared with the um, other, particularly the military sort of peacekeeping aspects. And I think that's all part of... Um, and I suspect we're going to see next week a number of states making major commitments at the time of the Global Summit um, debate, uh, looking at the members of the United Kingdom government who are here, um, is part of the United Kingdom is a major player in the Security Council. 
um, that sort of trying to push states to um, to keep to some of those commitments and take them seriously um, in various ways. I, I think the United Kingdom government has done a lot in raising awareness of the issues, but that sort of ongoing need for implementation and so on. Um, I wish, I just really seriously wish I knew some answers to the whole issue of the DRC. As was said up there, yes, it is the absolutely um, shocking and apparently continuing, and not just continuing in terms of conflict, but continuing in multiple and complex ways in what is supposedly post-conflict. And, I mean, we could talk about... um, failure of access to justice um, in various ways in which the various courts and bodies have failed to deal effectively with perpetrators. Um, there was the attempt of the International Brigade, first time the Security Council has ever authorised a body to, uh, an, a, a UN force body to actually um, address issues of sexual violence. Uh, Again, that had short-term effect, but not long-term effect. It clearly links up with the question from the back about how does one change attitudes. It clearly has to also link up with issues around the the, um, connection, relationship between um, predatory economy, particularly around the extractive industries and extreme wealth Um, of the DRC, how that impacts upon relations with respects to um, sexual violence and gender relations in general. Um, You said, I mean, isn't, isn't, with the DRC, isn't it, it both at the same time too many people trying to investigate it and not enough? Um, so without either being able to come to any effective answers. Um, No, we haven't got any immediate um, plans um, to link with the um, gynecological and hospital and so on, although I know other people in the United Kingdom have. Um, We'll see how things progress. And was there another one? Was that it? Did you respond, Kate? Yes, I've responded to Kate. This one from Mary. I've responded to the chairing job, am I? Uh, one more question. Oh, and ICO. Sorry. Oh, the legal framework. Yes, okay. Thank you. Um, yes. Chairing in the audience for me. Um, interesting, yeah, because again, what we have, and I think this is a problem of both international legal frameworks and political frameworks, is compartmentalization. So while the Security Council resolutions reference international humanitarian law and human rights law, um, precisely because they are not themselves written as legal instruments, they can make, in some ways, um, broader statements. In other ways, they make much narrower statements. If you look at the um, CEDAW Committee, General Recommendation Number 30 on um, Women in Conflict and Post-Conflict, that's coming from a human rights body, they are far more able to make the sorts of linkages um, that the Security Council won't for obvious geopolitical-type reasons. The CEDAW Committee has said, right, states, when they report to the CEDAW Convention, 
tell us what you're doing with respect to the women, peace and security agenda. Now, if they would take that seriously and really start challenging states, we might get that synergy um, that you are talking about. As it stands at the moment, the Security Council doesn't question states particularly on its human rights aspect, occasionally when you have a special rapporteur's report or something, but not as a systematic, coordinated type way. I think the CEDAW committee could do a really good job um, on that. Okay. Thank you, Christine. I'm going to stop, but I did just want to add before um, thanking Christine and telling you about the reception that, you know, um, one of the things that's quite important about the Center for Women, Peace, and Security is that while we do have some some ideas about our agenda over the next couple of years, we really welcome, actually, ideas for research projects, workshops, uh, engagement. So, you know, if, you know, we were discussing DRC today in a workshop, and so if there's an opportunity for us to organize an event or you think that there are things that should be on the agenda, you know, please, please visit the Center for Women, Peace, and Security and and perhaps we can propose some kind of uh, um, critical dialogue about um, different aspects of specific case studies or comparative case studies, so on. Okay, thank you. Let me just tell you about um, next week's event, which I hope you will join us at. Um, Next week on Wednesday, the 14th of October, CEDAW experts Jane Connors, Lillian Hoffmeister, and Christine will be discussing the evolution and challenges faced by CEDAW, the Women's Convention, in the context of conflict. Um, So please do come along to that. And you can, again, as I said, you can visit the website to see future events. Please uh, join us outside for a reception to recognize recognize, uh, Christine's... Uh, amazing feat here today in in launching the Center for Women, Peace, and Security. And before doing that, please join me in thanking Christine. For her time.